to the Gentleman Ultra Down Under podcast. I'm your host, Frank Risotto, and I'm joined by Ricardo Ball of SENZ. Ricardo, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure, mate. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so the unofficial voice of football in New Zealand. Am I, have I got that right? Yeah, that's officially unofficial. That's correct. <laughs> no worries. Um, so, yeah, so... The, your background and your history in New Zealand. I'm guessing Ricardo wasn't a very common name when you grew up. No, mate. No, no. I didn't meet another Ricardo until I was in my 20s. Um, so it's not a particularly common name over here. Um, so def- yeah, definitely stands out. And, you know, working in radio over here, um, as I've done for since I was oh, 21, 22, somewhere around there, uh, you know, I, I remember having conversations quite funny because my dad's family aren't Italian, mum's family's Italian, and you go to the regions to learn your craft, right? And particularly regional New Zealand, Ricardo's even rarer than it is in Auckland or Wellington or anywhere. And so I used, used to use Ricardo on here. Then I came to Auckland and I was working for a station then called um, Radio Hauraki, and I did my first air check with the boss, and he was just like, everybody's got two names you've got to use two names and I was like oh okay all right he goes what's his surname again I was like ball and he's like yeah that's not going to work um he goes he's like I like the Ricardo but we need something that goes with it so uh, from that day on I was Ricardo D'Angelo for my for my, for my career on Radio Hodaki. oh beautiful beautiful yeah. yeah yeah so it sounded even more Italian than I was <laughs> So what's your family background growing up in uh, New Zealand there? You mentioned Italian and English, is that correct? Yeah, well, yes, yeah, basically. I mean, my uh, mum's parents came out after the war um, and where they're from is now actually Croatia, but before the war was part of Italy. So it's part of the old Venetian Empire, you know, up on that, uh, what we call now the Dalmatian coast. And so, yeah, they came out from there, but I mean, they they always considered themselves Italians. We got brought up, you know, basically that family was, that part of the family was really tight and got brought up as we were Italian. We supported Ferrari in the F1. We supported Italy at the World Cup, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, uh, so, yeah, that was quite funny. But uh, my mum's made a name as Vukic, which is obviously not particularly Italian. It's definitely Croat. So, uh, yeah, there was a, there, there's a bit of a mix in there, but they, they had Italian passports. Italian was the first language. Zara, which is now Zada, which is where my nonna's from, was the Italian town in that part. Like, so it was very much an Italian town. Um, so yeah, so, so yeah, we got brought up very much with that, that, that kind of Italian feel. But over, I, I mean, I understand it's a bit different in Australia to here where there is definite divide between say, the Croatian communities and the Italian communities and the Serbian communities. But over here, the Italians and the Delis particularly was very fluid. Like they kind of were just were just one kind of uh, entity for a lot of it in terms of um, you know people that my say my grandparents and that hung out with they came over on the boat with it sort of like they didn't really differentiate too much. All speaking some form of weird hybrid language, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, this <laughs> being my, able to communicate my, with each other. Yeah, well, I mean, my my grandparents both spoke fluid um, Croat, and you know, the, the, I think there's a slightly slight difference to Serbian but not much from that and so my nonna also spoke that and he spoke a bit of German and a bit of Hungarian a bit of Russian so he was he was pretty uh pretty good with the old with the languages so you know that, that wasn't too bad they, they kind of so they, they found a way to get along yeah were they speaking Italian at home like as a kid as a child yeah. like around the family yeah yeah my my nonna um because he had to go work you know, obviously in the workforce and he was working with Kiwis, he learned English, you know, his English is very good. My nonna, though, she never learned to drive, never did any of that stuff, was always the stay-at-home mum and her English 
um, was was wasn't great it was okay i mean she could make herself understood and everything i mean uh but she had this thing where particularly at home if you're around there she would start because my mum and everybody they will speak italian all the all the kids speak italian but the grandkids not so much and but my nonna would be talking to you and she would start a sentence in english and finish it in italian and not realize she'd done it like just you know <laughs> just just the way it went so yeah i, I don't really speak but I, un I understand a bit and, you know, from that, you know, because I, I think um, after mum had me, she went back to work and my nonna looked after me until I went to school. And so I kind of spoke Italian with her during the day when I was a kid and then spoke English at night when mum and dad were home. Yeah, but then when I went to school, I kind of lost it all. Yeah, it's funny. They, it's probably, it sounds like my nonna over here where she can't speak English or write English or never, never had a driver's license, never worked, but, you know, she can understand a lot more than what she would, let on you know and you can yeah. you can always see when she's listening or when, when she can pick up on certain things yeah 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 well there, there was um yeah she had these funny little things where she would get things not quite right so you know the this the term blowing raspberries she would say blowing strawberries and right. things like that you know you should just get the little things wrong yeah. Yeah. um but which was quite funny uh, uh but i remember my sister and i uh i don't know i was in probably my early 20s being you know going and visiting and um nonna asking me uh you know uh, you know ricardo you still uh, you speak the italian you remember what i think to teach you and i was like oh i remember a few words nonna she's like what do you remember and i'm like oh ah monica uh vaffanculo uh you know <laughs> and she's like i didn't teach you that and i'm like <laughs> Well, basically, every time, you know, we were around, we'd hang out as kids, we'd be in the in the sort of dining room and you'd be, she'd have a, a, a set to with my nono and disappear into the kitchen. And that's all you would hear out of the kitchen was that. And those are the things that stuck with us as kids. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> she was horrified, horrified. The positive influence these beautiful, powerful women are, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. no, they're pretty special, we're like having to arrive to a you know a foreign country with kids some of them you know single mothers essentially no job no money uh, can't speak a language it's pretty incredible what they had to go through and how they survived you know I'll, I'm, I'm in awe of my nonna yeah yeah well you know my, i talked uh, to my to my nonna about it as well i mean he's still with us he's 93 and um he you know talked about when he came because of the connotations of being Italian in an allied country after immediately after the war, you know, there was, I don't know, I wouldn't call it racism because I think that there was probably, you know, there are a lot of people here who lost people in the war. And at that time you blamed the other side, you know, and that was the Italians and the Germans. And so he copped a lot of shit. Mm -hmm. And when he first started working and he'd get, get a lot of abuse and, you know, discrimination and stuff because of where he was from. But uh, as he went on, he got, you know, he got past it and he ended up actually, because he was a qualified electrician when he came to New Zealand, uh, but the qualification wasn't recognised here. So he had to reset, do his apprenticeship again, basically. And he had a job at a, at a canning factory. Um, used to, you know, uh, metal containers, AHI metal containers, it was called. And he did his apprenticeship again, and he was very good at what he did. And then uh, basically him and another guy who'd done his apprenticeship with in the end, they ended up contracting all the electrical work for their, they set up a company and contracted all the electrical work out. And the guys that were giving them all the grief that were the senior electricians all lost their jobs. So he kind of got the revenge in the end that way, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, good on him, good on him. Yeah, 
and I, both my nunas and nunals, like, you know, they went through a journey as they all did to get here and uh, same in New Zealand. But yeah, there's definitely stories out there. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was the influence on, like the influence on football, that migrant influence in New Zealand? Like I know here in Australia, a lot of the clubs, you know, you had your Croatian clubs, your Italian clubs, you know, your Serbian clubs, for example. Um, did they have a similar sort of setup in New Zealand where that was, you know, in Auckland and, and where you grew up? Was that like a, a hub for them to get together and that was their quote-unquote safe space, you know, on the weekend where they could swear and eat their nuts <laughs> and yell at each other and, yeah, take each other's yeah. eyes out with hand gestures? Yeah, there was, there was probably a little bit of that. Not so much where I grew up because I grew up out um, in East Auckland which was very uh, English settled or, you know, UK settled. So um, I grew up there and most of like my old man played football. He was a Kiwi, but he was very much a football guy. And, you know, of his team, I reckon, you know, say there was a squad of 16 or whatever it was, probably two of them were Kiwis and everybody else was either English, Irish or Scott. Um, And so they had that, but then there were certain clubs like in Wellington Island Bay, uh, is very Italian. It's, there's a lot of uh, Neapolitans there. And in central Auckland, Sandringham, there's a club that's now called Auckland City, but it used to be called Central Croatia. Uh, and uh, you know, now, they're, now they're Auckland City. And uh, so they have a place in Sandringham where they play Kiwitea Street, but they also have the Croatian Cultural Society, which is just down the road from where I live now in Te Aratu, uh, which the West, is in West Auckland. West Auckland was a big hub for the Dalmatian community. That's where all the wineries and things are out here as well. You know, all the streets around me are uh, Vera and Vodonovic and Vinograd and, you know, all these kind of things. So um, that's just down the road. And they, the first team now plays a lot of their games at the Croatian Cultural Society because they've got these amazing facilities and a beautiful field and everything. So they, they play a lot there too. Yeah. And so that, yeah, it was around, it was definitely around, but not probably as much as it was in Australia. And that area of Auckland, it was known, I know you mentioned it before to me. Yeah. It was known, it had a certain name. I'll let you say it because I'll probably butcher it. Uh, what's well, the other two? Oh, no, the Dallies. Oh, yeah, the Dallies. It was, yeah, it was like the house that I'm in now uh, was built in 1950. And in this area, it's they're called Dally houses because they're, they're brick with, um, you know, sort of terracotta tiled roofs. Um, and, and that was what all the, the Dalmatian people used to build when they built they build their houses, you know, and they're big into the fisheries and the wineries and, and things out this part of the, uh, out of Auckland. So, yeah, if you see a brick and tiled house in West Auckland that was built in the 50s, they're called Dally houses. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, named after the Dalmatian community. Yeah, yeah. So football in New Zealand. Um, what's what's the the current state? How how healthy do you think it is? You know, at the moment, not only domestically but internationally. You know, we know they're on the on the they've got the intercontinental playoff versus Costa Rica coming up to qualify for the World Cup. Um, what's it like over there? Being in New Zealand, is it is it front and center? Is it at the forefront of everyone's minds, or is it still considered? Uh, very much a lower tier sport compared to rugby it's probably bigger than it was in terms of you know its profile uh, but yeah still rugby's first second and third um you know that's just you know dan carter for example could help a little old lady with her shopping across the road and that would be the lead story on sport you know even if the all whites had won a game at the world cup that would still be you know that's how it works uh, much like i guess afl or nrl uh, over in oz uh, to an extent, but it is definitely bigger. And I mean, at the moment, I think probably in terms of the players we're producing and where New Zealand football is in terms of internationally and professionally, this is probably better than we've ever had it. 
we've got more players playing in professional leagues overseas, both men and women, than we've ever had. Um, you know, just this season, I'm sure you're aware, you know, we've got a uh, couple of Kiwis playing in Serie A now. Uh, which, you know, has never happened. So Liberato Kikache earlier this season got that move to Empoli. Uh, so he was the first Kiwi ever to play in Serie A. That happened this year. You know, uh, we've um, got Matt Garbett, who's who's uh, on the books at Torino, and uh, he got a chance this morning. He was on the bench against AC Milan. He never got on the field, but he was on the bench, and that's that's a big thing. So we've got those, those kind of stories. Um, Obviously, we've got guys, a lot of guys playing in Scandinavia. There seems to be a real synergy there, and there's relationships between some Danish and Swedish clubs and New Zealand. So um, there's a lot of young Kiwis playing there, and that's a real pathway into Europe, those Scandinavian leagues. So there's a guy, Joe Bell, who's probably our best midfielder now, and he's still only, I think, 21. Uh, and he's just been signed in January to uh, by Brombu in Denmark, who's the, the big team in oh, Brombu, one of the... Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, in Denmark. And uh, he was signed to replace a homegrown player that they had just sold to Genoa. Yeah. So, you know, you can see that that's the pathway. So we've got a lot of that going on. And then, of course, you know, in England, we've got Chris Wood running around playing in the Premier League, which is, you know, fantastic as well. And um, obviously plenty of guys playing in the A-League as well. Marco Rojas on the weekend tearing it up for the Melbourne victory with a couple of cracking strikes. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of depth, it's as good as it's ever been right now. Uh, and and it is more newsworthy. It tends to be followed more in the news and people are more aware of it than, say, they were when Winton Rufa was banging in goals 20-odd years ago in the Bundesliga. Yeah, and that we talked about the World Cup, but just taking a step back, the 1982 World Cup in Spain. Now, I know the, the official FIFA film, Goal, uh, with Sean mm -hmm. Connery narrating. I, I, my brother and I just watched that on repeat over and over and over again. Um, obviously, with winning, Italy winning, that helped. But I do remember seeing the New Zealand team there in, in their, you know, all white Adidas, very tight shirts and white shorts and them just chilling out on the bus, going to games and just, they looked like, you know, what are we doing here? Um, yeah. yeah, what's the... What's the, what was the legacy of that 1982 World Cup? What did that mean to... I know, obviously, you, you're only uh, young. You weren't around at the time on, on professional radio. But what was the legacy of that team um, to, to make the World Cup? What, 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 I guess, Lee, like, what, they seemed to fish out of water, but what, what did that do for football in New Zealand? Well, it did a lot of things. It was really big because um, uh, something that you guys might not be uh, aware of in Australia is uh, that the qualifying was happening during, in 81, well, there was a Springbok tour in New Zealand, and in New Zealand. And the New Zealand Rugby Union and the New Zealand government had rubber stamped that they could come, even though the rest of the world had pretty much banned them for, you know, because of apartheid um, and wouldn't, wouldn't play them. That's um, why a lot of African countries didn't turn up to the 1980 Olympics. And that was a in, in relation to us letting the South Africans come, you know. And that caused a lot of rife, uh, strife in New Zealand. Um, there were massive protests. There were games that had to be called off. Uh, there were clashes with riot police. Um, it, it, was, it was really bad. It was really, really bad. I, I just actually, because it was the anniversary, the 40th anniversary of it not long ago, we did some specials on SENZ and I re-watched a bunch of it and watched doc about documentary about it and because I was how old was I nine when that was happening so you don't you don't really take that in you know um, but you know the one thing that stuck in my mind was a guy who hired a light aircraft and was flying over one of the stadiums dropping flower bombs on the field to try and stop the games you know things like that so as a result people in New Zealand or the, the wider public 
I think, fell out of love with rugby for a while because they were like, what are we doing? What's going on? And so football became the safe place to go. You could go to football. And that was when we were in that qualifying round. And, you know, I went to pretty much every game uh, with the old man. The old man was big into his football as well. And so he took me to every game. Uh, so we went to all the qualifying games. You know, uh, we held the record for a while for the biggest score in a World Cup qualifier. We beat Fiji 13-0. And, you know, there's a guy who was my footballing hero as a kid. Uh, was a guy called Steve Sumner, who was the captain of that 82 team. And, you know, he scored six in that game out of midfield. Um, he was kind of like a, if you want to compare him to say, he was like Brian Robson, basically, you know, and uh, he, he was that type of all action midfielder, did everything, was blood and thunder and got stuck and was a great captain. And he was a great ambassador for the sport years later as well. Uh, and I was lucky enough to, you know, hang out with him and have drinks with him and go to dinner with him a few times and kind of become a bit of a mate um, before he passed away. So uh, that was pretty special for me. But, you know, that was some of the legacy of that. That really brought football into the public um, space. You know, people were really all about the All Whites there. There was a song, Ray Wolf was like one of our big entertainers here. He did a, one of those cheesy, cheesy World Cup songs. We're the All Whites and we're on our way to Spain. You know, all that with all the players in the videos singing along doing the BBs. And right. So yeah, it was massive. It was massive. And it was unfortunate that people New that were running New Zealand football at the time didn't capitalise on it properly um, for whatever reason that was. I think a part of it was self-interest. Part of it was ineptitude. Um, and part of it was rugby sorting itself out again. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward to 2010, South Africa, no, yeah, 2010. Yeah. What did that do for football? Did you ever, did you ever think you'd, it was 2010, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what did you ever think that would, um, did you ever think you'd see New Zealand playing Italy in the World Cup? No, never, never. <laughs> yeah. Sort of felt very torn about that, actually. How did that go um, down? How did that go down in the wall household? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough one. It was one of those ones that I just kind of sat there and watched the game. And, you know, it was just like, where there were chances at both ends, I was wanting teams to score, if you know what I mean. You know, it was kind of like, a, it was kind of like that. Um, so, yeah, that was fantastic. I mean, that, again, really sort of took the country by storm. I mean, the... Um, we call it the cake tin um, because of how it looks, but the, the Sky Stadium down in Wellington mm -hmm. is where they hosted Bahrain for the for the second leg of the playoff. The playoff we'd yeah. Gone, yeah, we'd gone to Bahrain and drawn nil all. Somehow they had butchered that because we we weren't at the races for a lot of that game. They, they should have probably scored three in that game and they didn't. Uh, and then we got them back here. Rory Fallon scored a fantastic header. Mark Paston saved the penalty that would have sent them through on away goals if they'd scored it. So it had heaps of drama. It was, you know, it was all on. And the Cape Tin was sold out. Like they brought an extra seating. They um, So I don't know how many were there officially, probably 40,000, something around that. And they uh, dubbed it the whiteout. So they encouraged everybody to wear white. So it was just this cauldron of white for the Bahrainians uh, to, to be in. And yeah, it was magic. It was an absolutely magic night. And that really captured the imagination of a lot of people as well. I've got, I think you're lucky if you get a New Zealand football book once every couple of years, but I think there were about three or four that came out that year around the World Cup, you know, as a result. So, no, it was fantastic. And, you know, that I remember um, I might have had a couple of beers, potentially, Frank, um, but I remember saying one, <laughs> yeah, one or two, but I remember there was a bunch of kids with the, their mum either in the row behind or in the row in front of us. And I remember just being super emotional about it and saying to these kids who were probably 10 or 12, just going, 
don't forget this moment. Don't think it's going to happen every year because it's not. It doesn't happen every time. So enjoy this, you know, and not at I and getting looked at sideways by like, who is this guy? What is going on? Shut up and leave my kids alone. Yeah. Uh, it's but true yeah, though, yeah. isn't it? Because like, I mean, you look at like in Australia's case, like you know, after the Uruguay game, they qualified in two thousand and six. It was such a huge monumental event. They hadn't qualified since seventy four. But now it seems to just be that, you know, Australia was qualifying every four years and it just became the norm, you know, whereas mm. in this current campaign, it's they've got the playoff against UAE and it's panic stations because not only is the, the football, the federation realising, hey, we need the money, but we're, we're really, we're, we're showing what a, I guess what a, it's sort of brought us back down to earth where we've realised the level that we're at and we sort of got a bit complacent having, you know, just automatically qualifying through the World Cup and, and going through Asia, um, it's not it's not not as easy as it used to be. Where it was essentially they'd go through Oceania, but Oceania before and play a whole stack of games till they had to get to New Zealand and then try to beat New Zealand and then, and then have the one-off playoff. Whereas in now it's an actual World Cup campaign. You know, and yeah, and, and like Italy as well. That's what I say to people all the time. We're so lucky and fortunate we get to see in our lifetimes, a, a World Cup victory and a European Cup, you know, European Championships. That's great, you know. Either side yeah. of not qualifying for a World Cup, we won't worry about that. But, <laughs> yeah, that's it's not something you get to see every day, you know. So hopefully this no. generation, I know you've got, we've got the playoff there, but hopefully this generation, which is mixed, again, with some experienced heads in there and some young guys in there, like you mentioned, Libby Kakachi at Empoli, mm-hmm. um, Matt Garber at Torino, you've got Nico Kerwin at Padova. Just won the Serici yeah. Copper Italia there as well. Um, this side, it's it's there. Like they, they, they definitely can do it. Yeah, they definitely can do it. Yeah, they got they got some real quality. They have got players playing in the MLS as well. Guys like Bob Biltui Loma, who plays, um, who has previously played in France. Actually, he played for Marseille for a while. But he's. You know, and then you've got, you know, at Minnesota United, we've got Michael Boxall as well uh, running around there. So we've got those guys playing. Tommy Smith, who was at Ipswich for a long time, uh, he's still playing in League Two in England at Colchester. And he tends to come off the bench late in games to try and settle things down. You know, he's a centre back who uh, does that. And Winston Reid, who's currently without a club, uh, but is, as far as I understand it, is hanging out a lot with Stephen Taylor, who's coaching a team in Dubai and running an academy and doing player fitness uh drills and things and, and rehabbing play, pros and stuff he's doing all that so he's working with him. played for the ex newcastle yeah wellington phoenix correct? yeah yeah so him so so I mean, even though winston doesn't have a club that's where he is and he's part of it as well so i mean we, what he's doing with his career i'm not sure but um We've got, yeah, definitely got some depth, you know, Chris Wood as well, Elijah Just out of Denmark, um, you know, we've got Costa running around at Sydney FC and Marco at uh, at the Victory and then, you know, a bunch of kids coming through, the Wayne train as they call him, Ben Wayne at the Phoenix and yeah, uh, yeah there's, 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 there's a bunch, so you know, like I said, our depth is, is unreal, it's just Costa Rica will be a bit of an unknown, I mean, they have Joel Campbell who used to be at Arsenal, um, who never really broke through there, but uh, but he played a lot in Spain. And then they have uh, Brian Oviedo and Brian Ruiz, who played at Fulham and Everton in the Premier League. And they've got, got Kayla Navas at PSG. And everybody else plays in the Costa Rican League, pretty much. 
So, and they're older, like they're all, I think Joel Campbell's 29. The others that I mentioned are all 35, 36. Early so, 30s, they, mid-30s, yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're all starting to come towards the end of their career. So I think on paper, if you look at where our players are playing versus where their players are playing, I think we've got a really good chance of the fact we don't have to go to Costa Rica. It's a one-off game in the Middle East. Mm. It probably suits us way more than it suits them. So, yeah, I think we've got every chance of making it. Yeah, and we, we touched on Libby and his move to Empoli. Mm. Um, how did that, did that make news in Italy, like in uh, New Zealand, sorry, with obviously yeah. him being the first New Zealander there? What's that? There's, there's obviously an Italian um, link to the All Whites teams. There's famously a, a few players there, like Raf Di Gregorio and Libby Kakachi, who have come through and have that Italian surname there. How did, how did that go down in New Zealand, his move over yeah. there? Oh, it was massive. It was massive because, I mean, he was, when he was at the Phoenix, you know, he came through uh, the Phoenix as a 17, 18-year-old and then got picked up by Kevin Musket and taken to St. Troy then in Belgium. Uh, but, you know, before he left for there, he was our best player. You know, he's probably the best player the Phoenix have produced, I think. Uh, you know, and that's saying something because obviously Costa, there were a lot of raps on him and there were a lot of raps on Marco. Uh, he just didn't quite uh, make it work for himself in Europe uh, through probably a few decisions that were made. But I think he's probably our best export from a, and from a Phoenix point of view. So, yeah, that made the news because people here knew him. He wasn't some kid who had sloped off to a European academy at 15 and nobody knew who he was. He was a guy that had been on our screens every week for two or three seasons and then, you know, had made this this leap. So, yeah, yeah definitely made the news, which was which was huge. And conversely, you know, the Nico Kerwin thing kind of makes the news because of who his dad is, even though it's, the, you know, different it's so long. It's, it's just feels like normal now, doesn't it? That he's, he's yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, so there, so there is that as well, which is, which is good, you know, and um, Sir John is, is very, uh, you know, vocal about that too. You know, he, he always, he always talks Nico up on what Nico's doing and you can always get him, you can always get a soundbite out of him when it comes to uh, talking about his son. Cause I think he, it's refreshing for him to be able to do that here rather than, you know, relive 87 or some bleeders like cup match or whatever. <laughs> Just talk rugby all the time. Yeah. And of yeah. course, you know, he's got that link to, to Italy coaching in Italy and, no, it didn't end as quite how he planned, you know, according to his book, but mm. from listening to him in conversations. But, yeah, no, he's got that time in Italy and that link to it as well. So it's good to see him over there doing well, you know, Nico at Padova. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And so it looks like uh, they – do they have to go through a playoff to make yeah, CNAB or are they there? It's like a uh, – I think it's a 28-team playoff. It's essentially like a bracket, I think, from memory. No, Barty's come up. Like, in, it's – you have to get the big A3 sheet and print it out. But essentially, I think it's like a bracket-style format. They all you know, yep. work their way up to, to one big playoff. Because CLSC um, is now regional, isn't it? So it's like yeah, broken up into yeah, three, so regions. three divisions. Three divisions, three, three regions. Um, so the side that... Uh, so last week, they won the Coppa Italia for CDC, which is like, you know, yeah. a division um, league cup, essentially. Um, but but yeah, they're they're in second place. So I'm guessing yeah, they'll have to go through the playoffs for him to get up through to Serie B. Yeah, yeah but he's been there for a while now. It was it's, part of it was not his first Italian. That's his better third, basically. isn't it? Yeah, I think it's like third his third club. club. Yeah, I know he was at yeah. Sassuolo for a while as well, and then he there was somewhere in between. That I can't recall right now, but yeah, now it's good to see him over there playing regularly. And that's you know same for a lot of them, like you mentioned about. Libby at Empoli, he's been starting regularly and getting minutes, which is fantastic. Um, so the, the and, and Matt Garbett, who's on the bench, he's been um, been playing really well for the Torino Primavera side. So so well, in fact, that they've drafted him into the first team. So yeah, the more the merrier. It's it's 
it's only looking up for New Zealand football, not like yeah, Australian exactly. football, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it does. I, I, I was going to mention that. But, yeah, I, I mean, I just thought, you know, you, you asked earlier about how it was different for me growing up in New Zealand, being with the Italian side as well as, like, Dad's family's English-Irish, mm. is that, you know, a lot most of my mates growing up uh, in football were Liverpool fans because Liverpool were the big team at the time. Uh, but I would, uh, you know... I, I would run around. I got used to get sent Paolo Rossi jerseys. So I used to get sent Juventus jerseys from my family in Italy. So that was different. You know, people would be like, what? You know, and all my mates would support England come the World Cup and I'd support Italy. So there was there was always that as well, that, that sort of point of difference, um, yeah. which which yeah. which was interesting. And, you know, I thought about it because I uh, I know there's it's not a punting podcast, but I actually won quite a bit of money on the 2006 World Cup. And it was, I thought we had a very good team. But the Italians tend to do well at World Cups when nobody gives them a chance and when no one's talking about them. And there were so many parallels with that 82 team. You know, yeah. Paolo Rossi had just come off that ban for the match fixing. You know, there had been, Juve had been relegated because of match fixing properly. in Italy. Yeah, yeah exactly. You had all of these different things. Nobody was talking about them. The press had written them off back home. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, and there was a strike with something to prove in Luca Toni, who, you know, wasn't being raided by anybody. You know, the Italian press was saying, we can't win a World Cup with this guy up front. <laughs> um, and so, I, yeah, I looked at it. I, I had money, I had $100 on him to be the golden boot. And I had $100 on Italy to win the World Cup. Oh, beautiful. beautiful. In 2006. Yeah. So, yeah, I was, I was quite happy with that. I was very happy with that. It's an incredible team because even when you look back at that 2006 side, there were some points there where, you know, and Italy has that connotation of negative football and, you know, the old old days of defensive one nil wins and shut up shops. So the Catanaccio. There was a point there where he, you know, Lippi had five and six strikers on the field. At, at yeah. one point, you know, you look at that Germany game. So that Italy Germany game for me, like I think about it now, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about, you know, the Grosso goal and the Del Piero counter attack. Like at that point, I think it, I'm pretty sure from memory there was like Yaquinta, Del Piero, Totti. Uh, I don't think I'm not sure um, if Tony had been uh, substituted by them. Gilardino was on, and there was one more forward from. Like, can't quite remember, but yeah, that that team was an attacking side essentially who won that World Cup going all out. And I know the final yep. wasn't a, a display of that, but it was such a solid team, and they just won. They won that World Cup all over the field. Like Fabio Grosso went there as a relative unknown outside of Italy, and was probably one of the best players of the tournament. Yeah, it was a bit like Spinozola at the Euros, right? Yeah, that's yeah, spot on. Yeah, and the same again yeah. at the Euros. That a lot of people had written them off, uh, and and because of their travel and their schedule and what they had to do, and you know who was in the team, who wasn't in the team. But it's just yeah, you can't you, you can't replicate. I guess that that us versus that you know us versus them, and much like '82, where it was you know shut shut everything down, and we're going to put up you know put the hat put up the the wall and the media and we're not going to talk and we're going to, you know, it's very much, very much a, a solid unit inside the team environment. Um, but the Euro side was like that as well. And they did, it, they did such a great job. Like that England game could have turned, could have turned so pear-shaped after, you know, five, six minutes, but you could see them slowly, slowly coming back into the game and you could see the whole momentum shifting. Yeah. I mean, it was just a pity that Spinozola got injured when he did because mm. he was so in integral to where they played. Yeah, um, they, they certainly didn't perform as well after he got injured mm -hmm. as they did before, but they still found a way to win, which was good. Hey, you asked me earlier about how I felt about 2010 watching New Zealand play Italy. Where were you on 
uh, Grosso in 2006 in the penalty against uh, Italy. Yeah, yeah. against um, Australia, yeah. I was happy Italy won. But if anything, I was probably more angry at the naive, naivety of Australia. And yeah. to me, it was I was more upsetting, more upset in the reaction of people where um, everyone turned on Italian football and, you know, they're this and they're that and they're, they're cheaters and they dive and they do this and then every other <laughs> ethnic slew you can think of. But to me, for me, it was just a silly decision on Lucas Neal's um, behalf. Like at that point in the game, with that amount of time remaining, where the ball was and where Grosso was, there's no need to dive in. It was just a stupid decision. But then that I put that down to fatigue as well on his behalf, whether it be physical, a combination of physical and mental fatigue. Um, so it, it again that that changed the tournament. Like if Australia gets through and they play Ukraine, that's a that's that's one of those what ifs. Because um, yeah. Australia, aside from Shevchenko, they probably could have beaten that team. Like that was, that was it. That was the generation that that was primed. Everyone was at their peak. Hiddink was doing things that, you know, it was it seemed impossible with that side. Who knows? But for Italy, they I mean, got through that Ukraine game, and then it was like on, onwards and upwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But um, I don't know. I, I felt a bit a bit funny, like you. You know, like where people. <laughs> Were bagging me out for supporting Italy, but that's that's my whole life. I'd grown up following Italy, you know. Like I've mentioned yeah. before, I wasn't I wasn't being woken up at four a.m. and to to watch Australia at a World Cup. And don't get me wrong, I was as happy as anyone that they were there. But um, I've always supported Italy, and I always will, regardless of whether they're there or not. Well, that's it. And the other thing too that you now you mentioned that is not enough was made of what Lucas Neal did because not only did he dive in. But when he realised Grosso was going to try and hurdle him, he tried to make himself bigger. He lifted his hips and he he arched his back. So yeah, he deliberately right. tried to make himself bigger. So it's like he's, he didn't have a leg to stand on, as far yeah. as I was concerned. Yeah, yeah. And then it was all, you know, it was all the diving, cheating Italian's fault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> did you ever watch Harry Kuehl play for Liverpool? Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, right. <laughs> all right, Ricardo, I'll let you go because I know you've you've got a lot on your plate. So thanks for making time today. And my uh, pleasure, mate. Yeah, all the best. Take care, and here's to New Zealand being making the next World Cup. We'll be we'll be stoked to see them there. Mate, it'll be good, yeah. And I mean, I know that you've got an extra hurdle to get through because you've got to play UAE and then Peru. But you know, fingers crossed. We see the Socceroos there too, because you know if the A League is strong and successful, then that's great for the Phoenix as well. So, um, you know, and all I, whites I, and all whites Socceroos friendly a week out, two weeks out before the World Cup sounds good to me. Yeah, well, although to be fair, last time that happened, we lost players with injury because you got so many dirty bastards in your team. But that's a whole other story. Yeah. Well, actually, they could both play Italy because Italy's not going to be there. So they might be the friendly games, right? Exactly. Exactly. No worries. The Italians aren't up to anything. That's right. All right. Thanks, Rick. I'll talk to you later. Take care. You too, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.